Okay, happy Friday. Good Shabbos. Today is uh, Friday. It's uh, another day here in Miami, beautiful Miami. It's winter time. We're in December. Holiday season is amongst us, but it's 75 degrees outside, and I get to wear a t shirt every day. So, haha for me, hooray for me, and not so hooray for you, depending on where you're located. In any event, I'm your host, Mike Maccabee. I'm the host of this MTIP live broadcast that we bring you every Friday, value and content about commercial real estate. And today we're going to be talking about a really, really important topic called real estate contract law. Now, I know it sounds like a very boring, very, very boring topic to really spend an hour on, but I feel like it's something that a lot of people out there that are in the business don't really talk about, spend time on. And that's why I am taking this afternoon an hour or so to really dedicate to enhancing your knowledge and understanding of contracts in the context of what we do, which is commercial real estate, um, so that it can hopefully better enhance your career and skill set and what you're doing today in the business. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce myself to those of you guys who don't know me. Again, my name is Michael Maccabee. I'm the founder of this brand, MTIP Commercial Real Estate. We are a brokerage firm, amongst many other things, and we have an online university called MTIPU.com, which you guys could head to right this very second to enroll yourselves into getting a, a stronger foundation and foothold about real estate, commercial real estate, entrepreneurship, business management, and everything in, and everything in between, excuse me. Um, I've been doing this for quite a while. Um, we're here every Friday. We're doing this out of the, really as a courtesy to bring knowledge and share information to people in the business. And hopefully you guys get some value out of it. So what is contract law? And why is it so important in the context of commercial real estate or real estate, okay? So this is, again, something that I could talk about this for 10 hours, but in a nutshell, the reason we use contracts or we speak about this is because a contract for a broker or for a buyer is like a gun, a rifle, okay? It's an instrument that the soldier takes out to the field, the battlefield, to go and combat. It's the instrument that will get you the end goal, which is the victory, which is the money, the deal, the whatever it is you're trying to ascertain in the context of commercial real estate. Without a contract, you really, you have nothing. It's like walking into the battlefield with your hands. Now I know Krav Maga and I'm pretty handy with my hands, but the reality is if I come showing up to a gunfight with my fist, guess what? I'm gonna get shot. So without having your contract, without having something uh, in your hand, readily uh, available to you that you know really well, just like you know your weapon really well. You want to know all the intricacies of the contract and know how to use it appropriately, right? You don't want to misfire. You don't want to shoot someone randomly. You want to know how to aim, structure, focus, and execute properly to be able to get to your goal, which is that victory. So, a lot of you guys probably don't know this. How many of you guys think you know what the elements, what, what does it mean to actually have a valid contract? What does that mean, right? 
If you're lucky enough to have gone to university or if you're a lawyer, if you have a lawyer in the family, maybe someone walked you through these points that I'm going to talk about in a second. But there are about six critical things, elements really, that will constitute a valid contract and they're as follows. Number one, you need to have an offer. Something needs to be offered in order to institute a proposal of a contract. Number two, you need to have acceptance. Acceptance meaning you're accepting of the offer. Three, there needs to be consideration. Consideration means I'm going to work for you in exchange for this amount of money or for something, right? It doesn't have to be money, but there needs to be an exchange of something to be considered. Four, there needs to be mutual, excuse me, mutuality of obligation, which means there needs to be some kind of reciprocation of I do this, you do that, and it needs to be clearly listed out. Number five, there needs to be capacity. So capacity is basically a nice legal jargon to say, I'm mentally sane and able and ready and willing and knowing of what I'm about to sign, right? So if you're an insane person, or for example, in America, in most countries, if you're a minor, you can't sign a legally binding contract because you don't have the capacity to do such a thing. Okay, I can't be the secretary of the secretary and execute on behalf of the corporation because I don't have that authority. So very critical piece. Legality, which kind of goes in with capacity, is the sixth item. Legality is it has to be legal. You cannot write something, okay, that's fraudulent. That is not a legal and binding contract, right? I can't make up something that goes against the rules and the laws of the land. So legality is important, right? These are the six components that comprise the elements of what a valid contract would constitute. So hopefully you guys now know this, and I'm going to give you guys some more examples as we talk about the various different contracts that exist in the realm of what we call commercial real estate. So without further ado, these are uh, the five, I would say, most commonly used contracts that we use in our firm on a daily basis, okay? There's a lot of contracts out there, but these are the five that we use the most. The first one is the listing commission agreement, all right? The listing commission agreement is, in our case, maybe a one page to a few pages in length, and it covers basically an exclusive or a non-exclusive right to represent an owner in the purchase and sale of or a lease of a property in exchange of a commission. We get a commission for representing exclusively or not exclusively a property owner and then we earn a commission as a result of it. So that's what a listing agreement does. It's basically a contract for hire to work with a owner, in most cases a seller or a property owner that's a landlord or it could also work as a exclusive or non-exclusive right to represent a buyer looking to buy or a tenant, which is less common, but it also exists. And that's what that, uh, that form is uh, there. Number two, an LOI. An LOI stands for letter of intent, okay? Now that's a very generic loose term that's used across a sundry of industries. Real estate happens to use it frequently and it's the most basic of forms uh, of tools to be able to negotiate between two parties. It allows you to vaguely, excuse me, specifically write down what you've expressed verbally between two parties to give you a basis 
to start or further discuss how you're going to make your contract, your formal contract, which we're going to talk about next. So a letter of intent is something mostly informal. You can make it uh, binding. Most of the time it's non-binding, which means that you're not legally bound to it. But it's a way to just basically talk back and forth. You can have counter proposals, counter LOIs between two parties until you get to this perfect, I would say, uh, mutual agreement between the two parties to then transfer the information in the LOI to a more formal binding purchase contract, which is what we're going to talk about next. So a letter of intent is a loose way to go back and forth in writing between two parties about a particular site, in our case, which is in real estate. The PSA, which stands for Purchase and Sales Agreement, all right, is the next level up after an LOI. It's usually used after you've gone back and forth with a party using the LOI, you then transfer your, your, th that information, that agreed upon information to a formal agreement, which is the Purchase and Sale Agreement. Traditionally, the purchase and sales agreement is going to be longer. It's going to be a, a lengthier, thicker contract, more legal jargon in it. It's got all the nuts and bolts, all these attorneys fucking pay to, to put in there. All right. It's a little more complex and it usually will require uh, a couple of pair of eyes to thoroughly look through it to make sure you're signing something that you agreed to and that it's legal so you don't get screwed. Okay. A purchase and sales agreement is what most people use to buy real estate. It's like a bill of sale when you go buy a car. It's a contract to a lease, for example, when you're trying to lease something. It's a more formal agreement between the two parties. And we use that frequently to buy the real estate we're pursuing. Number four, the assignment agreement. So for those of you guys who are out there doing wholesaling, syndication, arbitrage, which is right up my alley, okay? You manage to find, research, identify, and find a property to go under contract with. And the term under contract means you now have a, a purchase and sale agreement mutually executed between a buyer and seller that you now have the equitable rights over that contract. That means you now control that asset for a set period of time, which is your due diligence period ideally, or the duration of the escrow, one of the two. And once you have that, you then wanna go and assign your rights to that contract, that PSA, to a third party. Now, a lot of you guys don't get this. When you find someone else to come and buy the property from you while you're in escrow and contract, you need another instrument, another quote unquote PSA, purchase and sales agreement for the new guy, right? What's my agreement going to be? How am I going to phrase it between me and this new person taking over my position? That's called the assignment agreement, all right? It's a fancy word to basically say it's another purchase and sale agreement that will work concurrently to buy the contract that I've already tied up, okay? The assignment agreement, uh, just like a PSA, just like an LOI, it's versatile. You can negotiate however you want. Like if you focused and heard me from the past, I've always said this throughout my entire career, there's one rule in real estate. There are none. It's the wild, wild west. Anyone can write anything so long as it's within the framework of those elements I spoke about a moment ago, those six items, and it's legal, it'll fly, okay? So an assignment agreement is a secondary agreement. It's a tangent agreement between you and a, traditionally as the assignor, the person giving the rights over, to the assignee, the person taking over your equitable rights over an agreement. 
Number five, an amendment. Okay, the word amendment, for those of you guys who don't know the basic term of English, an amendment is to add on, to change, basically to add or alter or change or modify something to an existing agreement. Okay, so let's say you wrote this really, really nice purchase and sale agreement, and then all of a sudden something happened in the course of your negotiation that required a modification. Something shifted, you needed more time, you needed a price reduction. So what you use is an instrument, a legal instrument called an amendment to modify your existing contract. Okay, that's the most loose way of saying it. You can use amendments to any existing contract. It's like adding paragraph or clauses to the existing boilerplate thing that you've already established. Okay, last but not least, an option. The word option is exactly what it sounds like. It gives you the opportunity, the right to do something. You have the elective to do this or not to do this. It's an option. It's optional. So what does that mean in real estate? For example, as a tenant, a lot of people uh, will ask this if they're, maybe they're, I'm a, you know, I'm in the trucking business and I lease out a warehouse and a terminal for my business and I have a five-year lease term. Many, many times at the beginning of my lease, when I negotiated my lease, my PSA, my contract, I will ask for a option to exercise an extension, which is, allows me to then execute a new lease in five years at my sole elective for another five years or three years or whatever it is that I negotiate. I can then also set an option to maybe perhaps purchase the property, right? I could be a tenant, I'll be there for five years, and I'll have the option, or what we call the first right of refusal, to actually buy the property if it ever comes for sale and the owner wants to sell. Those are just two simple examples of what an option is. There, when we do a purchase and sale agreement, we make sure that we always ask for the option to assign our rights to the deal to someone else, or to a different entity. Okay, and I'm going to talk about that in more detail in a moment, but these are some very basic rudimentary things. One thing we didn't add here that I want to mention quickly is the NDA or uh, uh, a uh, CA, which is a confidentiality agreement or a non-disclosure agreement that is used every day. And that basically is an agreement that allows you to divulge information to a specific party on the basis that they will not or are not allowed to discuss it with anybody else. So if I have a pocket listing, a deal that's not on the market, an off-market deal, and I want to share it with a new potential buyer, before I give up the address, I'm going to probably get them to sign what we call a non-disclosure agreement or non-circumvent agreement, NDA, NCA, before I divulge that address. And we're now going to dive into what we call a listing agreement or a commission agreement, all right? I spoke about it tentatively, now I'm gonna go really deep into what it really does. So, so, a listing agreement is an agreement between an agent, the brokerage, and the principal. A principal is either a buyer, a tenant, or a property owner. Predominantly, it's gonna be the property owner. Most real estate agents that work for a brokerage are the ones that go out there, try to get what we call an exclusive right to lease, sell, or manage a property from a property owner. Now, the reason they want to do that is because when you get an exclusive listing, 
uh, agreement signed with an owner for a set duration and for compensation, we're going to talk about in a second. That means no matter who ends up facilitating the deal, the owner brings a tenant, the owner brings a buyer on their own with their own merit, another broker ends up showing up with a buyer, no matter who shows up, you get paid your commission regardless. And that's why so many agents work so hard and diligent to get that exclusive commission agreement signed. But here's the, the catch 22 that a lot of people don't tell you for those of you guys who are realtors out there. The reason why a commission agreement is kind of bogus is because most of the time, most commission agreements, the way they're structured and the way they're listed out, they say that if you bring a, a buyer, for example, to a property that you have the exclusive listing on, and let's say for argument's sake, it's a million dollar property, and I bring a buyer, buyer Bob, and I did exactly what the listing agreement said, and for whatever reason, the owner decides to reject Bob's offer or elects to raise the price. Most of the time, th that's the owner's right. And as a result, the owner has at its full discretion the ability to basically renege or push off your agreement. And they'll find a loophole for you not to earn your commission. Now, there's of course exclusions to every rule. I'm generalizing. I'm saying this from experience. It's happened many, many times. I thought because I have an exclusive agreement, I'm protected. And by the way, you will be protected. And most of the time, if you do have these exclusive rights, no one will dare to fuck with you. But, but, but if I was the owner, when I deal with a lot of sophisticated owners, I will finagle my way around this listing agreement if I wanted to fuck with you. And for that reason, it doesn't have the same power or authority as something like, let's say, for example, to a PSA, a purchase and sales agreement, which really binds the owner to a place where they can't shift the price anymore because it's set in stone. Okay. So that's just one little quick little example of the, the use of a listing agreement and how that's structured and the significance of a purchase and sale agreement in comparison. Now, a commission agreement is completely negotiable. Like I said, no rules. You can negotiate the price, the commission rate. You can negotiate, and your commission, by the way, could be zero, could be 1%, could be double the value. Whatever you want the commission to be, whatever you manage to convince between you, the broker, and the principal, flies, all right? For as long as you want it. You want a commission agreement or a listing agreement for a week, a month, six months, four years, it's whatever goes, okay? Now you also can decide the, the way you're going to market the property, right? You're gonna market it exclusively off market, exclusively on market, which basically says you're gonna publicize it to the world, you're not gonna publicize it to the world. All these different intricacies is all described, or should be described in your commission and listing agreement. Now, I keep saying these two words and I don't want you guys to get confused because a lot of you guys don't know the difference. There is a difference between a commission agreement and a listing agreement, okay? And the difference is one thing. It's exclusivity, non-exclusivity, okay? Actually, it's the other way around. Listing agreements are generally gonna be exclusive listing agreements, which basically mean I exclusively represent you, Mr. Principal, the owner, and regardless of who comes forward, I'm gonna get paid. A commission agreement, which generally will happen, and uh, uh, will explain 
the non-exclusivity of the deal, getting a commission, but not necessarily having the exclusive rights to represent the owner, to make it simpler. So basically, uh, for argument's sake, I'm a broker, I'm broker Mike, I head to my buddy Joe, the owner, and I say, Mr. Owner, I'd like to get the exclusive rights to represent your property for 5% for the next six months, and let's make that happen. He says, no, I don't wanna give you an exclusive right, but I will give you a commission agreement another agreement for that's non-exclusive that guarantees that you will get paid that five percent if you bring me the buyer for my set price then yeah i'll give you that commission agreement and both of them are are credible they're contracts they're viable they're enforceable but the difference is if the owner doesn't want to go with your deal he can it's easier for him to renege or move away so that's the major difference between a commission agreement a non-exclusive agreement and a listing agreement. Now the term listing agreement could be non-exclusive listing, but in my book, in my terms, it's basically a commission agreement. When you have a non-exclusive listing, you basically, all you have is a commission agreement at best, which basically says you're gonna get paid if, if you bring me a buyer under these certain terms, then I'll pay you, okay? So exclusive, non-exclusive. Now, um, there, there are terms, okay? There are legal terms in our industry to describe these differences open listing, exclusive agency, exclusive right to sell, net listing. I'm gonna talk about at least two or three of these in, in, in the moment. The first one being an open listing. An open listing is also synonymous with what I call that commission agreement. An open listing means it's open to the world. It's non-exclusive. You have the right to try to bring me a tenant or a buyer, but you're not the only guy on the block that's trying to do it. I gave an open listing to a variety of people, brokers out there, to bring me someone. And the first one to the task that fits my bill, my terms, that's the guy I'm gonna get, is gonna get paid a commission. An exclusive agency, very similar to the exclusive right to sell, okay, they're very, very similar, is what I said earlier. You have the exclusive right, no matter who brings the deal, so long as you sign that agreement, you're gonna get paid. And lastly, the net listing. Now what a net listing implies, in many states, uh, I'm told it's illegal. I'm not sure, okay? I, I, I never really tried to get a net listing. I generally just put a property under contract and then made the difference, but I'll explain. A net listing is basically an agreement, a commission agreement, could be exclusive, could be non-exclusive, that basically says, um, the, the owner says, I want to sell my building for a million dollars. Okay, anything above a million dollars is your commission. That basically constitutes the essence of what a net listing is, okay? So it's like whatever the margin will be. It's not necessarily based on a percentage or a dollar figure. It's an open-ended profit margin, which motivates a lot of brokers to try to get a net listing, but a lot of owners will not give that net listing because why would they? They want to make their margin. Now, that being said, my personal preference is when I first started in the business, my broker at the time, um, we had a, 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 an organization called the AIR, the American Industrial Real Estate Association, back in California. And they had their boilerplate uh, templates for all these different types of contracts. And what I would do is, because I didn't know what a contract was or what types, the different types, I would go and I would read these, these agreements and they would have a variety of different listing agreements and I would read them all. They were like six, eight, ten pages long. 
and they had a lot of legal verbiage. And obviously, the more complex an agreement is, the more specified it is, the less likely someone's going to sue because everything is really articulated. It's when it's vague, when there's less, when it's shorter, it seems simpler, but it opens the ground to all sorts of possibilities to sue each other. Okay? Which, unless you're a savvy business person, I don't recommend. But anyways, getting back to the story, when I was young, I would sit down and I would read these contracts in my spare time because I was like, how am I going to go in front of an owner, pitch them about the next eight pages and not know what the fuck I'm talking about? Okay? You don't need someone else to, to tell you these things. What you need to do is sit your fucking ass down and read. Read it, read it, highlight it, read it like you're, you're literally testing yourself. And if you come across terms, legal jargon that you don't understand, look it up. You look it up or you go to your broker or you come to someone like myself that's a little more sophisticated and I'll answer it for you. But the point is, learn it, learn it well because it's just like your weapon, like I said in the beginning. It's like your rifle, it's like your pistol. If you don't know your gun, if you don't know how to use your gun, you're as good as dead. Duck sitting in the water. So I emphasize this because everything I'm going to talk about, this being the most basic, 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 dumb contract, right? It's supposed to be the shortest contract. It's the listing agreement. Today in our company, when someone starts working with MTIP from our university, moves over to our brokerage or our systems, we give them access to pre-formatted templates using a company called PandaDoc that basically all the verbiage is there. All you got to do is fill it out like a little form. And a lot of people get complacent. Why? Because a lot of the work has been done for them. They don't read it. And then they have questions and they don't realize how to solve it because they never took the time to actually study it. So I am determined to drill this through all of your brains. Read the documents. Read it over and over again until you know it like a Bible. Okay? Last but not least, the listing and a commission agreement. I don't emphasize uh, the word listing when I go and approach a seller. I, I walk into a seller appointment, right, trying to get a listing if I'm a real estate agent. And I will say, I will title the contract commission agreement. By the way, you can title a contract anything you want. You can call it American success contract and that will be the name of the contract even though it's really a listing agreement in its context. Nobody cares. When you go to court, the judge is not going to say, oh, you didn't name it the, the, the appropriate header. No one cares. So long as it has those six elements of what institutes a contract, a legal contract, it's going to be enforced. So in my book, to create a less timid reaction from an owner, I'm going to walk in with a one-page, very clean, big font for stupid people type of contract that comprises, that holds, excuse me, all these elements of what we call a commission agreement. And I don't know if we have an example of it, but I'll explain it to you. And I'll, for those of you guys who join MTIP, you guys will have access to it to see it. But it'll say, you know, the owner's name, their address, the date, um, the duration of the agreement, when it starts, when it ends, how much the property is pr prospectively going to sell for, or we want to sell it for, or lease it for. Um, what the commission rate is um, and the ability to exclusively or not exclusively represent that owner in a transaction and then how we're going to market it. It gives us the right to market the property 
whether we have it exclusively or non-exclusively, we get that signature from the owner that says, listen, you're going to pay us this much and we're going to try to promote it. You're okay with that? Sign right here. And that's our, our door, our walkway into the, the, the deal with the owner. It's step one. You want to work towards getting an appointment as an agent or a broker and then getting a commission agreement signed. Okay. The last thing I want to say, if you're a buyer or a principal and you're not a broker and an agent, a commission agreement, and this is the value I tell so many of these wholesalers out there that they don't get. When you find a, a lead uh, that comes in or you go out referral and it happens to be an uh, at market or overpriced property uh, proposition. If you're a buyer, you're probably not going to buy it because there's no margin. You, there's nowhere you can sell it to because there's not enough profit margin. But if you're a real estate broker, and this is where it's critical, you can take advantage of that fair market or above market and try to list the property to earn a commission. Now the commission could be 1% and up to 6%. That's what I call a broker fee. Okay. And that's the beauty or the difference of complementing of adding a broker element to your purchases as a buyer. And we do that in my company. That's why we have a brokerage and we have our own real estate fund. We buy our deals, but we broker the deals we buy because the deals that we can't buy, okay, or we don't want to buy, we end up pushing the listing or a commission agreement on. It's very basic business. The point is you're spending time and effort going out there to try to find deals and you're letting so much business slide underneath the carpet or underneath, get underneath the carpet. But you, if you had a broker element, right? Even if you don't have a brokerage, you can refer those deals to brokers and earn a percentage of those commissions. You're up. You made more money. And that's the end of it. That's what a listing commission agreement is. I digress. But a letter of intent is not necessarily a legally binding agreement. It can be legally binding if you just say it is. Okay. It's submitted as a custom or a courtesy to show intent or to start the, the, the beginning at part of your negotiation with a, a principal, another party. So you can do a letter of intent to buy a house. You can do a letter of intent to buy an investment property. You can have a letter of intent to work for a company. You can do a letter of intent to, to literally anything. It's just an informal way to start communicating between two parties and engage on a negotiation. It's usually one to, I would say it could be 10 pages. It could be as long as you want. You can write as many points in terms as you feel necessary to be able to articulate or properly articulate your intentions. That's why the word intent, excuse me, is a part of the word, uh, the phrase. Okay. So it lays out the terms that you will then eventually move to put into the PSA, the purchase and sales agreement. Now, let me give you guys some examples of what a letter of intent represents. Okay. So for example, you can have a letter of intent, um, to try to go and buy a property, which is the most commonly used, uh, purpose behind our LOIs. And usually our LOIs are about three to four pages long. They have, um, and actually, you know what? I'm going to take the moment to actually show you guys what one looks like. I'm going to head to PandaDoc because I think this is valuable. And I apologize for not taking the initiative to prepare this, but we have a bunch of templates. Let me go into uh, anyone here, really. Let me do, let me do uh, 
You go to Jan. Okay. So this is going to be an example of an LOI that we use in our company here at MTIP Commercial Real Estate. Okay. So here it is. The LOI will always start with obviously you want it to make like a clean letterhead with your company or your brand, whether you're a brokerage, your real estate fund, your wholesaler, whatever it's gonna be. You want your brand representing there so people can identify who you are when they're talking to you. You also wanna be professional enough to have the name of your company and all of your contact as the header, like any formal letter you would ever write. Underneath it, you should address who the letter of intent is designed to go to the owner, the owner's broker, the owner's attorney, the owner's wife, whoever it is that you're talking to on the phone or in person that you now want to transfer into paper, that goes right there. Okay. The sentence starts by saying, offer to purchase real estate portfolio of the person, the entity that owns it and it's related and relevant holdings. So that's the subject matter of this letter of intent. We want to mention that at the very top. Usually there's going to be an opening that is kind of like a, a basic introduction that'll say something like, dear sir, dear John, dear Mr. Fluffer, I've been authorized on behalf of Broadbridge in our case and or assignee, which is, gives us the right to assign our position. We're already indicating it in the very beginning of the LOI to present the following offer to purchase the above reference real estate assets and or portfolio under your control. If you accept, we'll put a more formal purchase and sale agreement for both parties to sign. However, should you have terms you want to be revised or questions or concerns, then please feel free to reply to an email or to us with the exact terms that you would accept. So basically, this is us coming to bat, okay? We're making an offer, we're throwing a pitch, we're slamming against the cages to see if something will stick, we can throw spaghetti against the wall. That's basically what we do when we send out an LOI. It's a starting point. A lot of people don't realize this, but really your LOI is like a business card. You guys think you guys should be going after the, the, the commission agreement first, the mistake a lot of people make, brokers out there, you guys are trying to go get listings. You're talking to owners about listings. Let me tell you something. Owners, they, don't, they get 50 million calls a day, okay, from buyers, let alone brokers harassing them. If you don't have something of substance to bring to the table when you say hello, you're probably not going to be looked at. So in my book, the very first thing, the very first thing you should be doing is sending them an offer. Okay. If you don't have a buyer to represent, come to me, I'll be your buyer. But you should be walking into that cold call to that meeting, to that door knock with, I'm not Joe Blow and here's my business card. Please give me business. It's I'm Joe Blow and here's what I can give you. Here's an offer, a letter of intent from my buyer that's credible that wants to buy your property. That will give you the first step of an audience for an owner to even listen to you. Okay, so for us in our business, this is step one. We have paragraphs, right? Every term, price, we describe the property like purchase price, the portfolio, um, how we're going to take possession of the property, our inspection or our due diligence period, uh, the purchase agreement that we're going to move from, the deposit amount we're going to put in to actually purchase the property, the earnest deposit, uh, when and how the opening of escrow is going to happen, 
how and when the close of escrow is going to happen, um, who's going to pay for the closing costs or the cost to facilitate the, the contract and the agreement, and then maybe uh, asking for all the various types of documentation we want the owner to give us as the buyer. Um, so we're requesting it like the rent roll, the surveys, any leases, yada, 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 uh, profit and loss statements, T12s, whatever. Get it all. We're asking for it. Uh, representation. If you have the brokerage, if you don't have the brokerage, who represents who, who's going to be handling who. Um, we definitely mentioned who's going, uh, the right to assign, which I spoke about and I keep reemphasizing. If you want to be a wholesaler, if you want to be a syndicator uh, in particular, or if you're just even trying to buy and hold real estate, the reality is you're going to try to buy it. You're going to come in as Michael Maccabi, the buyer, and eventually you're going to open up an LLC for that specific property. And you're going to need to assign the contract from Michael Maccabi to this new LLC, but you want to be transparent and you want to tell the owner or the owner's agent from the beginning that that's going to happen. Okay. You're going to decide on your escrow company or who the attorneys are going to be, depending on your state to represent and hold the funds and handle the deal. You want to know who the title company is going to be, who's going to provide title insurance. Okay. Who's going to certify that for you. Um, and then there's all sorts of fun options and outliers, which are the last few paragraphs. I always leave that at the very end. Okay. There's the boilerplate stuff. The number one through 16 is pretty much 15 is boilerplate. And then the last couple of items are going to be these exceptional things. So for example, we like doing really long-term escrows because we might develop the site because we might want to syndicate the site or because of a million different other reasons. But we ask for longer term escrows and sometimes the owner wants a longer term escrow because they need to find a 1031 exchange to move their ass their funds to. And so we give the owner what we call a seller early closing period. It's an option, but not for the buyer's benefit for the sellers. And this basically allows the seller, okay, to say, here's 30 day notice, here's 60 day notice to the buyer in the middle of the contract. That's maybe for a year in, in duration. At some point, you can just throw this notice into the, 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 the mix of things and the buyer will be then obligated to close sooner. Okay. And this is another, it's another tool. It's another paragraph we threw in there for the benefit of the seller to get what we want. See, I don't believe and most of you guys out there have been in business long enough. You'll know this to do a good deal and you can do good deals. It's a scenario where everyone wins and it's not impossible to make happen. You just got to hear what each other's concerns are and then find a mean, a bridge to, for, to fill the, the gap. Okay. That's what makes you a good negotiator, a good business person. And this was one of the obstacles we had. We were like, all right, we want a really long escrow, but how do we give you something so that you can exit out of it? And that was the option. Another option that we asked for, is creative financing, right? I don't like going to lenders. I don't like banks because they fucking ask you for a million things and it takes a really long time. And it also prevents you from closing quicker if you don't have liquidity or if you're short on liquidity. Okay. So we asked for something called seller financing. I'm sure a lot of you guys have heard of this. It's a means of creative financing. The very same person I'm buying the building from, I will go to them if they have a lot of equity or very little debt, maybe no debt. They've owned it for a long time. I will ask them to hold the paper for the property, become my bank. Okay. And I start paying them interest every month and they transfer title to me. They become the lender. They hold a mortgage against the deed. And just like that, we have seller financing. 
In it, we're going to describe the loan amount, the interest payment, the duration of it, yada, 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 in a nutshell, in a paragraph. That's another paragraph that's an outlier that we asked for. Number 18, it could be, I'm a business person, I really like the building and I'm buying it for my company because I'm going to use it. Okay, and I, again, I have a, a, a three month, six month, whatever the length of the contract is, but in the interim, it's sitting vacant and I need access to it. So what I'll do is I'll have a buyer's option to lease during escrow. So I can actually lease it, even though I'm going to buy it, between me now going to buy it, that period of time, I'll lease it and I'm going to say what my lease back rate is going to be. Maybe the owner needs to lease back the property for a duration of time before they can hand it over. You might buy it in 30 days, but they can't move out for another six months. So you're like, listen, I want to buy it. Why don't you rent it? I'll rent it uh, back to you while after I closed on it for the next six months at $5,000 a month. That needs to be written out. And these are just examples, all right, of different paragraphs that you can throw in. You can be so creative. That's the beauty of commercial real estate. You can get as creative as you want. You can literally write whatever the fuck you want and get away with it. Okay, so long as the two parties agree, you're good. Last but not least, we have the closing of the letter of intent. It says, it is understood that this proposal, this letter of intent, is for the sole purpose of negotiating the economic terms of a purchase agreement and is not to be construed as a legally binding agreement by either party. Only an executed purchase sale agreement should represent a binding agreement. So we're, we're taking the liberty to really, really articulate and reinforce the fact that this is not a binding agreement. Mr. Owner, don't be intimidated. It's just you and I talking on paper so that we can eventually take what we wrote to hold each other accountable and move it over to a formal contract. We also have this really great uh, bold statement disclaimer, which is for brokers. So we use our one property market lead generation system to find off market deals all over the country. And we literally plaster a, a, a shit ton of property in a specific area. And we don't differentiate between whether it's on the market or off the market. Most of the people, 97% will be off market. But the two, 3% that are on the market, those owners are going to get an offer too. And just to show good faith to the brokers that represent those owners, we stuck in a clause here to be ethical, to be transparent and says, listen, if you have your property listed, please forgive us, give this offer to your broker and have them reach back out so that we can continue this dialogue. And that's again, to be honest, to have integrity and to do the right thing between the community of brokers because you don't want to have a bad name. Okay, the last but not least underneath the signature blocks is going to be the fact that there's a set duration, there's an expiration to this offer to keep a sense of urgency, all right? You want to say this offer is valid until tomorrow, next week, next month, whatever it is, something within reason, you want to mention that um, and then that's it. We also have a little exhibit that really articulates if it's multiple properties, we'll list it all out. And that's our LOI. That's the basic essence of our LOI. I've done a ton of LOIs, long ones, short ones. This is where we're at today. I hope that was beneficial for you. I'm going to move back to our original screen here. Okay, so that really summarizes what an LOI is. Our LOI, I just gave it to you. If you guys want a copy of our LOI, reach out to me uh, through a DM or text me at the number listed and I will gladly give you access to a copy of it for your own personal use. 
Okay, for free. That's how large, that's how open I am. It's it's not like I invented what a letter of intent is, but I won't lie. Everyone's letter of intent is slightly different, even though generally in the business, people have the same framework. People customize it to their liking. So that's ours and I'll give it to you. Now, as much as I want to really, really, really invest the time to show you our purchase and sales agreement, I'm not going to lie. It cost me $15,000 with a bunch of attorneys to draft this agreement. It's a sophisticated, complex, and I deliberately make it that way because I want all the legal jargon to be in it because I don't want to get into a lawsuit. Okay. So as much as I'll try to be transparent and open in the letter of intent and my negotiation, I really make sure I cross all my T's, I dot all my I's in the PSA. It's a critical agreement. That's literally like going into the battlefield with your rifle ready to shoot and you forgot your ammunition, right? You look like a fucking joke, you die. So for me, I take it very, very seriously because now we're entering the realm of this is a legally binding agreement, okay? And anything that becomes legally binding, you better, better fucking pay attention, okay? Because no one wants to get into a lawsuit. It's not a fun place to be, uh, especially it's coming for me. I've been into a lot of them in my life, uh, whether it was me suing people or me being a part of a lawsuit for other people's companies. I've seen it. It's not fun. So try to avoid it at, the, at any cost. And everyone knows that attorneys, they're all motherfuckers. I'm sorry, those of you guys who are attorneys out there, you guys are all motherfuckers. And I'll say it happily. And that's your business. Your business is to be a motherfucker. Take people's money, throw yourselves in court, and uh, yada, yada, yada. Game goes on. So for me, for those of you guys who are good attorneys, and there are good attorneys out there, okay? These people, these select few brilliant angels okay these are the people you're going to end up talking to that will guide you and they'll tell you what i'm about to say to be a smart business person they pay once and they pay at the beginning that's how you use an attorney you never want to use an attorney after the fact oh boy oh boy your life is pretty much gone if you have to hire an attorney after you've already signed a contract you're in it for a long, deep bunny hole of mind fuck. Financially, emotionally, psychologically, you're gonna drain yourself. So listen to me, take my advice. If you're gonna sign a legally binding agreement, and that's why I'm spending the time to say this, make sure you give it to an attorney if you're not savvy enough to understand what's written, and make sure you pay. Don't be fucking cheap. Pay the attorney to have them specifically read it out to you, highlight the items you don't understand. By the way, you don't give an, uh, an agreement to an attorney and say, here, go fetch and tell me if it's okay to sign. You read it, you write notes, you understand what's written. If you don't understand, that's when you go sit down with your attorney and you compare notes and they explain it to you. That's what you're paying them to do, to give you a fucking education, okay? That's how you're supposed to use an attorney. Back to the PSA. So the PSA is the instrument in which you want to lock in the owner, the property owner in particular, okay? This is the most important contract verbatim, hands down, in real estate. Without the PSA, okay, I would not afford this watch, I would not afford that camera, I would not afford the office I'm sitting in. The PSA is the reason I have attained any level of wealth that I have. It's my rifle 
and it's going to be guarded. It's going to protect me for the rest of my life. And it should be the same for you. So treat it with respect. You need to know your PSA better than almost any other contract next to the assignment agreement, which we're going to talk about in a moment. The PSA, okay, could be very long. There are boilerplate templates in every state in America. If you're a realtor, if you deal with realtors, they're going to give you these form-based PSAs, okay? We've taken a very complex PSA and made it form-based for our people too. You can literally, again, use PandaDoc, fill it out, and great. But the truth is, regardless of what state you're located at, if you're a broker, whatever you are, residential or not, you're going to have to learn how to read these things. And there are very similar, uh, a lot of similarities between contracts. You're going to see the same terms, the same uh, paragraph headers, slightly differently phrased, but generally the same shit. And the more you read them, the more you see them, the more comfortable you're going to become negotiating those PSAs without necessarily dealing with your attorney or their attorney every two seconds. I can tell you with confidence after almost over 15 years of dealing with contracts, I don't care what attorney you throw in front of me. It could be an $1,000 an hour paid attorney and you'll stand in front of me and I will know how to school them. And I might not even know the law and I'll still school them because there's the written law and then there's the reality of life. And attorneys will bark and intimidate just like these contracts are designed to do. They're there to design to create leverage. But don't ever forget this valuable lesson I'm going to share. Okay? There's a story. There was a very simple story. We went into a deal. We signed an agreement. We had a very strong agreement, right? It was very favorable. It was very good. Uh, Ten attorneys reviewed it. We paid a lot of money. And then the owner didn't perform what the contract said. And I'm like, booyah shaka. I'm going to fuck this guy up the guy's ass. I got him by the balls. And boy, oh boy, was I in for a treat. The reality was completely different. When I sued them, and I was so enthusiastic to sue, right? Because I had this contract. I didn't realize, wow, the contract was for me to make a hundred. The whole thing was for $100,000, just to throw it out there, okay? It wasn't a large sum, but it wasn't a small sum. It's 100 grand. I went to my attorney. I'm like, listen, it's, this is like a clad proof agreement, man. I got him to sign it. It's got all the terms. It's perfect. He's like, great. You want to sue him? First round, $10,000. Fork it up. $10,000 for what? Well, I got to process the paper and I got to facilitate blah, 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 blah. And we'll see what happens. I need a retainer for 10,000, 5,000. I'm like, that's five, 10% of what I'm going to collect. Listen, you want to sue. This is the only way. This is America. We're in a democracy. You can't take two thugs with a gun and put it against their head. You go to jail. So I sued. I sued. And let me give you the bottom line of the story. It took two and a half years, not to win, but to settle that case. And guess what happened at the end of it? I didn't make a hundred. I didn't make 80. I didn't make 70. I broke even to try to pay the attorneys that I paid for two and a half years. And I made zero dollars of the hundred grand I set out to go do. And I wasted two and a half years of my life. And that was because I was cocky, not experienced, and dumb, not knowing that even though you have a legally binding agreement, the reality of going to court, going into the ring, what I call it, is completely different. Okay? 
So as much as I'm advising you guys, cross your T's, dot your I's, the reason I'm saying to avoid lawsuit isn't because of the financial burden. It just sucks your entire essence. And if you're an emotional person, which most people are, and you're scared and you're not, not experienced, you're gonna really get into a bind. So to avoid all that, take my advice, pay the attorney, do the contract right, get through the terms, and call it a, a day. Okay, I'm gonna push forward. We talk about this PSA in really, really great detail in our course. MTIP University has it all there. Okay, if you guys join and enroll, I'm encouraging you guys to do it. I'm trying to give as much content as I can within this hour or so every Friday, but the reality is this is hours of information to convey in minutes and it's impossible to do. But I gave you guys, I think, a good little illustration of what it's for, what it does, and how you guys can use it. If you want to learn more, head to mtipu.com and enroll. Um, we forgot to mention this, which I'll gladly do. Are we okay on time? Okay, so look. I'm gonna throw this into as far as general elements of a PSA, a contract. You need to know who the buyer is, who the seller is. And every PSA, it's gotta be listed. You need to have the consideration, right? The purchase price. You need to know the due diligence period and the close of escrow period. Due diligence being the amount of time the buyer has to evaluate and inspect the deal without any monetary obligation. And then closing period is, now you've released money to the owner You've gone hard on the deal and now there's a time between that point to when you actually give them all the money and close on the deal. That's the closing period. Uh, earnest deposit is the initial deposit you're going to show or give the owner of good faith. It's usually between half a point to 5%, usually 1% to 2% of the purchase price. You want to identify the escrow and title company that you're going to use or the attorney for the deal. You're going to identify the brokerage and the commission, and then you're going to identify if it's a cash deal or if it's a finance deal, who's financing it, what rate, blah, 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 and so forth. That's the essence of a purchase and sale agreement. There's obviously a bunch of other shit, tricks, cool things that we have that protect our interests, that give us a leveraging position in front of the owner. Um, and again, by the way, in a PSA, it could work both ways. When I'm selling a property, if I'm an owner, I still have to use a PSA. So depending on what side of the, the fence I'm on, you use the PSA and you wanna make sure you understand what points to use to your advantage when you are structuring these agreements. And we go again into great length about that in our MTIPU platform. Okay, let's move on to assignment agreement. Okay, so I spoke about, ooh, I spoke about what an assignment agreement is. It's basically a PSA, but it's a PSA for the PSA, if that makes any sense. So you got an owner under contract. You went from an LOI to a PSA, and now it's binding, and now you have an enforceable agreement with the owner. That becomes a product, a commodity, where you can go and do arbitrage. You can then wholesale, syndicate, assign your rights to that contract and make a fee for it, okay? And this is where, really where I live, this is my realm. This is the realm I'm trying to implore so many of you to get into because out of being a broker, a rehabber, a wholesaler, a developer, or a buy and hold investor, passive investor, being a syndicator is by far the most lucrative position with the least amount of brain damage in the shortest span of time out of all these rules. 
And a lot of you guys that are just beginning or an intermediate, you don't really realize what I'm saying until you go through the grunt of all of these different roles to get to this conclusion. Okay? But that's a different uh, conversation. So going back to the assignment agreement. Once you get that PSA signed, you're going to need another agreement between you and the new person you're trying to assign your rights to that deal over to. And that's what we call, we had our assignment agreement. It's going to really live within the same confines of the PSA, same kind of terminology, except it's going to be a lot more aggressive. And it's going to be instead of about, you're not trading a building. This agreement is trading, the, the, the commodity here is the contract. Right? So the first agreement, the PSA, is really between me and the seller, the buyer and the seller, for a building, for a series of buildings or properties. And the assignment agreement is really a contract between me and the assignee for the contract that I hold with that seller. That's the major, major difference between the two contracts. Now, an assignor, mostly in, in, in English, anything with an or is the one giving, e, assignee, the one receiving. Okay, grantor, grantee, lessee, lessor, just for you guys to throw that out there. So I'm the assignor, I give it always. And one thing I'm going to emphasize before I digress, because I don't want to spend too much time here, because we do a great job uh, on the platform talking about this, is that an assignment agreement has to be stricter than the original purchase and sale agreement. So if you buy a building, for instance, for a million dollars, okay, and it's worth, let's say to someone else, 1.5 million for argument's sake. Okay, there's a $500,000 difference that you can assign your position to. Being a syndicator, which is a little upgraded version of a wholesaler, the wholesaler would buy the deal, close on the deal, rehab potentially the deal, and then sell it. A lot of work, a lot of risk, not worth it. A, a non-rehabbing wholesaler would just buy the deal under contract, put it under contract, and then sell the contract for the fee, for the five hundred. dollars Okay, that's a regular assignment. Happens all the time. And then there's a syndicated assignment, which is a far more sophisticated assignment. It's when you take the fee, the 500, and you say, wait up, don't give me the 500, give me 100, 200 in cash, or nothing, and instead replace that money with equity and let me own the building with you, okay? And then that's a whole different strategy. You can now become the limited or the general partner in that syndication, which means basically general is I run the show, I then go find the debt, I do the management, I do the rehab, whatever, I'm the general partner. Or the limited, which is the passive aggressive uh, 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 investor, which is what I love to be, right? I'm dying to be the passive investor. I'm dying to be the little guy. I'm dying to have no say in the property. You know why? because my time is far better spent on the next deal, on the next syndication, than being buried in that one property for the next 12 to 16 to eight, I don't know, two years of my life and doing that one deal, okay? And more importantly, by doing this, you're not investing any capital that you have earned and paid taxes on. This is pre-tax. When you assign that half a million dollars over, you never collected it. So you never paid taxes on a half a million dollars. And so you can earn a half a million dollars, in, for, for argument's sake, in equity in the deal. You can be 50% partner, you can be 30% partner, whatever that, that calculates to be. I'm not going into the math of it, but you can do that. And then you can transfer the burden and also the, 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 really the benefit 
that most property owners like. You know, someone with money that's buying the deal from you, they probably have a lot of money. They got egos. They're like, I don't want, I don't want the partner. I don't want uh, to be the minority stake partner. I don't want any partners. Most people. I tell them, great, listen, I don't want to be your partner. I want to be your subordinate. I want you to be my leader and for me to be the subordinate. Listen, I did my job. I found you a deal. I gave you really nice terms. You take it over, okay? And you just give me my little nugget. You give me my nugget and I, I go bye-bye. You can choose, you want to sell it, you want to refinance, whatever you want to do, you're the boss. That's my strategy because I don't have the brain capacity to sit there, argue. Should we build this wall? Should we not build this wall? Should we uh, bring this tenant? Should we not bring this tenant? I don't care. Pay me my check every month for the rents whenever you collect them. Refinance and pay me back my debt the way I'm supposed to get it to. And uh, when you sell it, give me my profit and I get my depreciation. That's my point. That's the beauty of being a syndicator instead of just a wholesaler. And I just threw that out there for you guys to expand your horizons and what I'm talking about. Okay, a lot of people, uh, sorry, want to do this. They don't know how to do this. It's easier said than done. Okay, it's a skill. It's a learnable skill. It takes time and you better know what the fuck you're saying and doing. And the best place to start is MTIPU. So what is an amendment in the confines of contracts and especially in real estate? So when you get into an agreement, right? Or you're about to get into agreement and you want to change or you want to alter, you want to modify or amend, really that was really where the word comes from, um, a already given segment of a contract, then you're going to use something called an amendment, okay? It, it, you can, to make things all fair and clean, attorneys love amendments, why? Because it adds on to the layers of layers of work. I personally don't like, even when I'm negotiating back and forth on the letter of intent, I don't use like layers of letters of intent. Like I'll, I'll send an offer out, they'll send an offer back, I'll send an offer out, I'll send a, in the end, what I wanna do is I just wanna use one offer, scratch out all the, the in-between stuff, and then have that to be the final thing we end up executing and getting rid of all the past back and forth, these amendments, these, the, these, uh, these changes. When you're already under contract, which is really when the amendment really comes into play, you're in escrow, the buyer needs an extension, and so an amendment needs to be drafted, a revision of the contract, because it said you only had 30 days, now we need another 30 days, so we gotta push the date. Both people need to re-sign that amendment to make it legal because it's a new contract, updating the existing contract. Um, and if you don't get that mutual execution, then it really doesn't fly. So for example, and this is something a lot of you guys, maybe a lot of you guys don't know about, you can be in an, an agreement right now and you're under contract and you have 30 days of due diligence for buying the property. And then all of a sudden you call up your escrow agent, you say, listen, uh, Bob, I need another 30 days. So draft me an amendment that basically uh, says we need another 30 days. So Bob makes the amendment, he sends it to me, he sends it to the owner. I sign it and I send it back to Bob. Bob's job as the escrow agent, as the attorney, is to go and get the signature of the owner too. But guess what happens when day 30 comes and the seller never signed, but I signed the amendment way before the 30 days were up. What happens? It creates an opportunity for me to be in limbo under that agreement. So what that basically means is the contract isn't canceled because the owner 
never responded to the amendment. So we're kind of, depending on how your contract is, is written, ours will say that you're in limbo. And I will earn additional days from the point that the owner actually signs the agreement or doesn't sign the agreement. But whatever I can get because of this instrument, this amendment, I got extra days. I got an extra week, I got an extra two weeks, whatever it is. It's a tool to extend. I just threw that out there as an example. There's many, many different reasons of why you would use an amendment, but that's the context of it. It's to modify an agreement. Hopefully that makes sense. Options, okay? Options, I talked about earlier, an option is to maybe perhaps purchase a property at a later date than when you just have it now. Like you have, you're a tenant, like I mentioned, and you have an option to buy it in three years from now. Um, you pay the seller a, a fee, some kind of a compensation generally, in exchange for the option. Uh, now don't confuse an option with a contract and assignment. They're not the same. Even though they kind of sound the same and act the same, they're not. Here's the difference. An assignment agreement for a contract is something that you've now, you have a contract. He cannot sell the building to a property to anybody else for a set duration. And you have the option in the contract to assign your rights in that period. Okay. That is a very concrete position to be at. In comparison, you are a tenant. You don't have a contract signed between you and the owner. He can now technically try to sell it to anybody else. But in another contract, you had an agreement that says, I have the option to buy your property. Okay. And the, the major difference there is, I would then, if he infringed and, 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 and sold it to someone else, I would have to sue uh, and be in a, in a far in, uh, worse position as the guy trying to exercise my option. By the way, a lot of people have won this case in court. I've read tons of articles and uh, case law about it, where they had the option, they sold it to someone else, the person, and they ended up suing and winning. And they ended up having to sell it to the person that with the option. Even though the other person bought it for more money or sold it for more money to another buyer, the guy with the option said, I had the option to buy this property for $2 million, even though you sold it for three or 4 million for the next guy. And they lost. The difference I'm trying to say is that they're two different things. Even though they're similar, I personally like the leverage of having the contract and then the option in real time rather than a future date. It does work. It is enforceable. You could have an option to buy. You could have an option to extend. You could have an option to do anything you want and agree to. And that's really what it is. Okay. So last but not least, I think we have uh, this last bit, right? Types of contracts. So there are a few types of contracts that uh, are discussed in America and most legal forums. And the first one is what we call the most natural is a bilateral contract. It's between two people. Two people have to exchange things that they need to do. Price, terms, that product, bilateral, two people. The next one, an uh, example of that, by the way, is a PSA. A PSA is an agreement between two parties. The next one is called a unilateral contract, right? It's a one-sided contract. It means one person needs to do something in order for it to take effect. And a great example of that is the option. An option is only exercised by one party, not two. I'm the tenant. I have an option to buy. The owner doesn't have to do shit. 
I can either say I'm going to exercise it or not. And that's what that is. An executory type of contract is something that's yet to be done. All right. So it's like, um, I'll give you an example. I'll sell you this property and here's our contract, but it's contingent upon this future thing happening first. Okay. So it's kind of like an open ended per se contract where something or some things need to happen first in order for it to be done, which leads me to the next one, which is an executed contract. An executed contract is it's been done. Everybody did what they're supposed to do. You now have performed your task. It's executed. Okay. Avoidable contract contract with the minor, for example, is a great example of a avoidable contract. It's not legally enforceable. You cannot, as an adult, as a business person, go to a 14 year old and say, Hey, sign the, the rights to uh, all your baseball cards to me. It's not legal. It's voidable. So those are the different types of contracts. I hope uh, you guys enjoyed today's segment. We talked about real estate contract law. We spoke in great detail about the different types of contracts. We spoke about a couple of the softwares. PandaDoc was the company pandadoc.com is who we use, where we built all of our contracts. We spent tens of thousands, God knows, maybe $100,000 at this point in attorney fees to make all these contracts. Those of you guys who want to get access to these contracts or access to more detailed in-depth training on how to use these contracts, all you got to do is reach out, text me, text us. I'm available. I'm the guy that's actually answering your text messages. So I'm not Grant Cardone. I'm not Gary V. I'm literally, I don't know if these people are really doing it or not. There's no drone. It's me. Okay. It's me or it's one guy working with me and that's it. Okay. We're not that big, not general motors here, but head to mtipu.com. It's our university. It talks about all of this and so much more. And it's the kind of the foundational layer to get you going in this business. A lot of you people are already realtors. You guys reach out to me. You guys are just beginning a few years in. I can help elevate your game, man, to a different level from access to leads, how to prospect, how to negotiate, what contracts to use, proprietary contracts, how to syndicate and assign, how to come up and raise with uh, raise equity and debt. All of this, okay, could happen, but you first need to take the first step. I'm looking for the winners out there, like the people that have been following me on Instagram. I appreciate you guys. You know. I, I, I'm not, uh, there's not a ton of people that follow me on Instagram. I'm very grateful for those of you guys who spend the time to do it. Um, we're trying to grow and scale this thing. We have a lot of business. We got a lot going on. I take an hour every week to stand here and to talk about something relevant for those of you guys who are listening. But the reality is there's a team of people that spend countless hours every week to make this little session happen for you guys to enjoy and benefit. And really the goal is, isn't to make profit from the educational aspect. It's really there to be a stepping stone for you guys to work with me on the higher level here, which is the brokeraging, which is the buying and trading of real estate, commercial real estate, which is the syndicating and so much more. Okay. So those of you guys who want to join our company that want to join our university. Okay head right now, head and sign up to mtipu.com. If you have a financial constraint and you cannot afford it for whatever reason, reach out to me. I will try to help you. I will teach you a way to make the money necessary 
to invest it into this platform. But there's gonna be no freebies. I'm not going to offer you something for nothing. The whole premise of why we're charging you a value is so that you value it, right? If you guys don't pay for what it is that I'm saying, you know, you will not benefit from it. I believe me, I'm speaking from experience and I've hired dozens, if not hundreds of people in my past. And I can see the clear difference between the winners, the successful people and the ones that fail. It's the guys that invested in themselves and the gals, people that invest in themselves that are diligent, hardworking, persistent motherfuckers. You guys are the guys out there and the girls that end up making it. Okay. Again, I wish I had someone like me at this juncture in my life to lead me to the fucking promised land. I didn't. You guys do. So on that note, I wanted to wish all of you an amazing Friday and weekend ahead. Till next time, I'll see you guys next Friday. We'll be talking about a new interesting subject about commercial real estate. God bless. Thanks a lot.